Act Two of The Princess of Ellis by Molière, translated by Henri van Loon, eighteen twenty to eighteen ninety six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Second interlude, argument. The agreeable moron leaves the prince to go and talk of his growing passion to the woods and rocks, uttering everywhere the beautiful name of his shepherdess Phyllis. A ridiculous echo answers him whimsically. He takes so great a pleasure in it that, laughing in a hundred ways, he makes the echo answer as often without seeming at all tired of it. But a bear interrupts this fine amusement and surprises him so much by the unexpected sight that he shows visible signs of terror which causes him to make before the bear all the bows he can think of to mollify him. At length he is going to run up a tree, but seeing that the bear is also going to climb, he cries out for help so loudly that eight peasants, armed with pointed sticks and spears, appear, whilst another bear comes after the first. A battle then begins, which ends with the death of one of the bears and the flight of the other. Scene 1. Moron. Alone. Goodbye, till I see you again. As for me, I shall stay here and have a little conversation with these trees and rocks. Woods, meadows, fountains, flowers, that behold my pale countenance, if you do not know it, I tell you, I am in love. Phyllis is the charming object who has fixed my heart. I became her lover by seeing her milk a cow. Her fingers, quite full of milk and a thousand times whiter, squeezed the udder in an admirable manner. Oh, the thought of it will drive me crazy. Ah, oh, Phyllis, Phyllis. Echo. Phyllis. Ah, ah, hem, hem, ah, ah, oh, 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 oh. This is a funny echo. A funny echo. Scene two. A bear, moron. Moron, seeing a bear approaching. Oh, Master Bear, I am your very humble servant. Pray, spare me. I assure you I am not worth eating. I am only skin and bone. And... I see certain people yonder who would serve your turn much better. Eh, eh, my lord, gently, if you please. There. He caresses the bear and trembles with fear. There, there, there. 
Ah, my lord, how handsome and well-made your highness is. You look quite stylish, and you have the prettiest shape in the world. Oh, what beautiful bristles! What a beautiful head! What beautiful sparkling and large eyes! Ah, what a pretty little nose! What a pretty little mouth! What darling little teeth! Ah, what a beautiful throat! What beautiful little paws! What well-shaped little nails! The bear gets on his hind legs. Help! Help! I am dead! Have mercy! Poor moron! Oh, good heavens! Oh, quick! I am lost! The huntsmen appear, and Moron climbs up a tree. He addresses the huntsmen. Oh, gentlemen, take pity upon me! The huntsmen fight with the bear. That is right, gentlemen. Kill that ugly beast for me. Assist them, kind heaven. All right, he runs away. There he stops and falls upon them. That is right. There is one who has given him a thrust to the throat. They all surround him. Courage, stand to it. Well done, my friends. That is right. Go on, again. Oh, there he is on the ground. It is all over with him. He is dead. Let us come down now and give him a hundred blows. Moron comes down the tree. Your servant, gentlemen. I am much obliged to you for having delivered me from this animal. Now that you have killed him, I am going to finish him and triumph with you. These fortunate huntsmen had no sooner gained this victory than Moron, grown bold by the danger being remote, wishes to go and give a thousand blows to the animal, no longer able to defend himself, and does all that a braggart not overbold would have done on such an occasion. The huntsmen, to show their joy, dance a very fine entree. Act Two, Argument the Prince of Ithaca and the Princess had a very gallant conversation about the chariot race which was in preparation. She had ere this told one of the princesses, her relatives, that the insensibility of the Prince of Ithaca disturbed her, and was disagreeable to her, that although she did not wish to love any one, it was very sad to see that he loved nothing, and that, although she had resolved not to go to see the races, she now would go, in order to endeavour to triumph over the liberty of a man who was so fond of it. It might easily be perceived that the merit of this prince produced its ordinary effect, that his fine qualities had touched her proud heart, and had begun partly to thaw that ice which had resisted until then all the ardour of love. Advised by Moron, whom he had gained over, and who knew well the heart of the princess, the more the prince pretended to be insensible, although he was but too much in love, the more the princess resolved to win his affections, though she did not intend to return his love. The princes of Messina and Pylos took their leave of her to go to prepare for the races, and spoke of the expectation they had of being conquerors, 
because they desired to please her. The Prince of Ithaca, on the contrary, told her that, having never been in love with anything, he was going to try to obtain the prize for his own satisfaction. This made the princess all the more anxious to subdue a heart, already sufficiently subdued, but which knew how to disguise its sentiments in a wonderful manner. Scene 1. The Princess, Aglanta, Cynthia, Phyllis. Yes, I love to dwell in these peaceful spots. There is nothing here but what enchants the eye, and all the noble architecture of our palaces must yield the palm to these simple beauties formed by nature. These trees, these rocks, these waters, this fresh turf, have charms for me of which I never tire. Like you, I love tranquil retreats where one avoids the bustle of the city. Such places are adorned with a thousand charming objects, and what is surprising is that at the very gates of Elis, those gentle souls who hate a crowd may find so vast and beautiful a solitude. But to tell you the truth, in these days of rejoicing, your retreat here appears somewhat unseasonable, and puts a slight on the magnificent preparations made by each prince for the public entertainment. The grand spectacle of the chariot race merits the honour of your notice. What right have they to desire my presence, and what do I owe, after all, to their magnificence? They take these pains on purpose to win me, and my heart is the only prize for which they all strive. But with whatever hope they may flatter themselves, I am greatly mistaken if either of them carries it off. How long will this heart be provoked at the innocent designs which are formed to touch it, and regard the trouble which people give themselves as so many offences against your person? I know that in pleading the cause of love I am exposed to your displeasure, but as I have the honour to be related to you, I oppose myself to the harshness which you show, and cannot feed by flattery your resolution of never loving. Is anything more beautiful than the innocent flame which brilliant merit kindles in the soul? What happiness would there be in life if love were banished from among mortals? No, no, the delights which it affords are infinite, and to live without loving is, properly speaking, not to live at all. For my part, I think that this passion is the most agreeable business of life, that in order to live happily it is necessary to love, and that all pleasures are insipid unless mangled with a little love. Can you too, being what you are, talk thus? And ought you not to blush for countenancing a passion which is nothing but error, weakness, and extravagance, and of which all the disorders are so repugnant to the glory of our sex? I intend to maintain its honour until the last moment of my life, and will never trust those men who pretend to be our slaves, only to become in time our tyrants. All these tears, all these sighs, all this homage, all these respects, are but snares laid for our hearts, and which often induce them to act basely. For my part, when I behold certain examples, and the hideous meannesses to which that passion can debase persons who are under its sway, my whole heart is moved. I cannot bear that a soul which possesses ever so little pride should not feel horribly ashamed of such weaknesses. Ah, oh, madam, there are certain weaknesses that are not at all shameful, and which it is beautiful to have in the highest degree of glory. 
I hope that one day you will change your mind, and, if heaven please, we shall shortly see your heart. Halt! Do not finish that strange wish. I have too unconquerable a horror of such debasement. If I should ever be capable of sinking so low, I should certainly never forgive myself. Take care, madam. Love knows how to revenge herself for the contempt shown him. No, no. I defy all his darts. The great power which is attributed to him is nothing but an idle fancy, and an excuse for feeble hearts, who represent him as invincible, to justify their weakness. But all the world recognizes his power, and you see that the gods themselves are subject to his empire. We are told that Jupiter loved more than once, and that Diana herself, whom you so much affect to imitate, was not ashamed to breathe sighs of love. Public opinions are always mixed with error. The gods are not such as the vulgar make them out to be, and it is a want of respect to attribute to them human frailties. Scene 2. The Princess, Atlanta, Cynthia, Phyllis, Moron. Come hither, Moron. Come, help us to defend love against the princess's opinion. Your side is strengthened by a great defender, truly. Upon my word, madam, I believe that after my example there is no more to be said, and that none should doubt any longer the power of love. I, for a long time, defied his arms and acted like a rogue, just as any other. But at length my pride was cowed, and you have a traitress, pointing to Phyllis, who has made me tamer than a lamb. After that, you ought to have no scruples to love, and since I have submitted to him, others may do the same. What? Moron in love? Yes, indeed. And is he beloved? And why not? Am I not well enough made for that? I think this face is passable enough. And as to elegant manners, thank heaven, we yield to none. Without doubt, it would be wrong to. Scene 3. The Princess, Atlanta, Cynthia, Moron, Phyllis, Lycus. Madam, the prince, your father, is coming hither to seek you. He brings with him the princes of Pelos, of Ithaca, and of Messina. Heavens! What does he mean by bringing them to me? Has he resolved on my ruin, and would he force me to choose one of them? Scene 4. Iphitas, Euryalus, Aristomenes, Theocles, the princess, Aglanta, Cynthia, Phyllis, Moron. Princess to Iphitas. My lord, I beg you to give me leave to prevent, by two words, the declaration of the thoughts which you may perhaps foster. There are two truths, my lord, the one as certain as the other, of which I can assure you. The one is that you have an absolute power over me, and that you can lay no command upon me which I would not blindly obey. The other is that I look upon marriage as death, and that it is impossible for me to conquer this natural aversion. To give me a husband and to kill me are the same thing. But your will takes precedence, and my obedience is dearer to me than life. 
After this, my lord, speak. Say freely what you desire. Daughter, you are wrong to be so alarmed. And I am grieved that you can think me so bad a father as to do violence to your sentiments and to use tyrannically the power which heaven has given me over you. I wish, indeed, that your heart were capable of loving someone. All my desires would be satisfied if that were to happen. And I propose to celebrate the present fates and sports only to assemble all the illustrious youth of Greece, that amongst them you might meet one who would please you and determine your choice. I say, I ask of heaven no other happiness than to see you married. To obtain this favour, I have this morning again offered up sacrifice to Venus, and if I know how to interpret the language of the gods, the goddess promised me a miracle. But be this as it may, I will act like a father who loves his daughter. If you can find one on whom to fix your inclination, your choice shall be mine, and I shall consider neither interests of state nor advantages of alliance. If your heart remains insensible, I shall not attempt to force it, but at least be polite in answer to the civilities offered to you, and do not oblige me to make excuses for your coldness treat these princes with the esteem which you owe them and receive with gratitude the proofs of their zeal come and see this race in which their skill will appear theocles to the princess everyone will do his utmost to gain the prize of this chariot race but to tell you the truth i care little for the victory since your heart is not to be contended for. For my part, madam, you are the only prize I propose to myself everywhere. It is you whom I imagine to be the reward in these combats of skill. I aspire honourably to gain this race only to obtain a degree of glory which may raise me nearer to your heart. As for me, madam, I do not go with any such thought. As I have all my life professed to love nothing, I take pains but not with the same object as the other princes. I do not pretend to obtain your heart, and the honor of gaining the race is the sole advantage to which I aspire. Scene 5. The Princess, Aglanta, Cynthia, Phyllis, Moron. Whence proceeds thus unexpected haughtiness? Princesses, what do you say of this young prince? Did you observe what an air he assumed? It is true it was somewhat haughty. Moron, aside. Oh, what a fine trick he has played her. Do not think it would be pleasant to humble his pride and to abase a little that hectoring heart. 
as you are accustomed to receive nothing but homage and adoration from the whole world, such a compliment as his must indeed surprise you. I confess it has caused me some emotion, and I should much like to find a way to chastise this pride. I had no great desire to go to this race, but now I shall go on purpose, and do all I can to inspire him with love. Take care, madam. The enterprise is dangerous. And when one tries to inspire love, one runs a risk of receiving it. Oh, pray apprehend nothing. Come, I shall answer for myself. End of Act Two